Welcome to the Military Psychology Podcast Network, the Society for Military Psychology, Division 19 of the American Psychological Association, is producing several series applying psychological principles in military settings. We'll feature topics including diversity, consulting, behavioral health in the military, and specialty areas. We address the question, what is military psychology, and answer it a number of ways. Follow the Society for Military Psychology at www.militarypsych.org. The Intro to Military Psychology podcast is an official podcast by the Society for Military Psychology, Division 19 of the American Psychological Association. It does not represent the position of the American Psychological Association or any of its other divisions or subunits. The contents, views, or opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of Defense, Uniformed Service University, Department of the Army, Navy, or the Air Force. All right. Hey, folks. Good to see you guys. Thanks for joining us back on the show. My name is Ethan. I've got Keen here with me, and I'd like to introduce our next guest on the show, Dr. Kristen Sabo. She is a psychologist that has done a number of things, military-related, corporate world, operational, IO, academics, a number of different topics that we hope to get in today. We think that she is a fantastic guest for this podcast, and we hope that this is informational for you all today. So, Dr. Sabo, how are you? I'm doing great. How are y'all? We're good. Thanks for joining us on the show. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's so... I'm just... Thank you for inviting me. It's always fun to get to, I guess, talk about experience, but also weave that in with how other people kind of can learn from that experience. So, thank you. Absolutely. So, what's your specific title in Division 19? Mm -hmm. So in Division 19, I'm the membership chair currently. I've been that now for a year and a half. So probably looking at my tenure coming to close soon here as well. Any past leadership positions or, or positions within Division 19 that you've held? No, actually. I jumped right in as membership chair. Wow. I've been part of Division 19 for, I guess, about eight years now. So I, I joined the first year that I was an active duty research psychologist. Great. So well, we can dive more into those details, but you know, welcome to the show. We're really excited to have you. And let's just go ahead and get kicked off with, if you mind sharing with our listeners, you know, what your background is from an education perspective, where you went to graduate school, and then when did you really first hear about this thing called military psychology? Yeah, those are all really great questions. So when I went into undergrad, I was destined to be pre-med. It's the only occupation I had ever imagined. I mean, it's it's the only one I ever talked about was I was going to be a doctor. What what did you like about being pre-med? What was what was the drive? It was just the, I was just passionate from an early age. My father also is a physician, and so that certainly probably compelled me, but I was going to be a neurosurgeon or a neonatologist. I was very specific. Wow. I knew what I wanted. <laughs> um, and I would say that's a personality trait that has stuck with me as well. I know what I want when I want it usually. Hmm. So I went to undergrad and I frankly was burned out on all things being a physician. I had done every AP course. I had done every internship I could in high school. I, I had done every science and math course. And so by the time I got to undergrad, I was tired of going to chemistry and titrating things. 
I was tired <laughs> of doing stoichiometry. It happened that I was good at it, but I was just kind of bored. Uh, so yeah. I looked around and I thought, you know what? This is not a good sign given the number of years of education in front of me for the specializations I'm looking at. And I should also mention, I come from a military family. So my dad was a flight surgeon in the Air Force. Uh, we oh, didn't wow. have to move around a lot, but I, I certainly grew up culturally in that world and, and have appreciation for what it means to serve versus, you know, serve in other capacities. Service isn't only present when you're in uniform, right? Like you can serve in a lot of mm-hmm. different ways. And my mom was a teacher as well. So that concept of giving back and selfless service, I would, I would say was really ingrained in me from an early age. When you were growing up, where was your dad stationed? Do you recall that, that mm-hmm. time? So um, Texas, San Antonio was kind of the epicenter of flight surgeonness, if you will. Um, aerospace yeah. medicine, uh, <laughs> as they call it. Um, so we predominantly were there as the hub, and then we would be there and then go somewhere else and then come back. And so I was born there. We went to Alamogordo, New Mexico, which is north of El Paso and White Sands. I spent some time in Dayton, Ohio. Back to Texas for several years. One of those fortunate situations where, due to his specialization, he could move assignments within the same location, which is really helpful as a military child yeah. to have that stability. That we know, of course, in, in research, it's like really important for children to have that stability in terms of their social circles. And then I headed up to Omaha, Nebraska, actually, to wrap up my last two years of high school. So I still got the military child experience of abrupt and existential threat to like what is going on in the world around me. <laughs> it sounds like it was Lackland Air Force Base. Was that primarily the hub? One of them back when Brooks was a thing, Brooks City Base, back when that was a thing that was actually the hub of aerospace medicine. Okay. The consultation service for many years. So he was there for a while as well. So that's awesome. Kind of common. I'm on internship. Oh, oh I'm, on, awesome. I'm on internship at Wilford Hall. So, well, you can look my dad up. Um, he's still a civilian now. <laughs> he did the classic military thing and got out. Oh, it's fine. It's fine. You go into global and his name's right before mine. So, <laughs> <laughs> got it. <laughs> global, the global email address book if um, for military, yeah. if anyone's not tracking that. Right, right. Um, yeah. But so, yeah, I, I did that. And then I went to undergrad and I got to undergrad and I was like, I need to stop titrating things in chemistry and like whatever else. So I, I took a semester and I enrolled in philosophy classes. Um, I was already planning mm-hmm. to be a psychology major. But I was yeah. like, you know what? This philosophy thing is fascinating to me. And it is a weird moment usually for parents when their child who's very focused comes home and says, I'm going to take a semester off from my very focused education and being a pre-med to sign up for multiple philosophy classes all in one semester. But I would say that's also been a pattern you can see in my life of like, oh, nope, I'm good. Like, let me, let me <laughs> do this next thing. And I, I've thought it through. I know what I'm doing. Um, so I did that. The and flight I- surgeon is scared, though. Uh, oh, sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, I actually, I didn't look back. I love, I love philosophy in terms of the way it makes me think and the, uh, the skills it gave me in terms of core critical thinking have really shaped my career and have shaped mm-hmm. me in terms of how I can approach the world and really have set me up for success as a scientist, um, very fundamentally in terms of being able to kind of remove the emotion and remove the subjectivity to things to approach them objectively and critically. And probably the single most impactful course I took in undergrad was logic. And that was because I had to for philosophy. And I loved logic. It was applying math to words. 
which is yeah. like mm-hmm. the coolest thing in my mind. It's so <laughs> cool. Um, and you can tear apart people's arguments left and right, which of course makes scientists scared because you know, they're hypothesis testing and you're like, that's not logical. Like that doesn't even make sense. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, so I was a philosophy and psychology major. I ended up doing an honors thesis that combined the two in a field called experimental philosophy, which was not really a thing at the time. It is now, actually. It's a whole thing, discipline. But when you think about psychology, that's actually where psychology started. So it's it's an interesting full circle. Psychology is the study of the mind. What is philosophy? Mm-hmm. It's it's thinking. So psychology is simply like the study of thinking, right? And there, mm-hmm. it's the study of philosophy. So I think that's really cool that it, it came full circle in many ways in terms of my interests, but in terms of then where it kind of led me and how I've been able to use that as a backbone of skills that I have in my tool chest. I actually studied abroad and took an IO psychology class. My undergrad was super itty bitty, a small liberal arts college, Austin College, which is about an hour north of Dallas incredible school, very, very internationally focused, very service oriented, very leadership oriented. And so with that, I got to go abroad and I took an IO class abroad in New Zealand and I fell in love with it. It was the perfect blend of application, which was important to me to see impact in the work I did. This philosophical thought that was much deeper in terms of how we are approaching the world around us and work, which fundamentally gives us profound purpose in our lives. And psychologically is so critical for us feeling like we are members of a society, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I just thought that was cool. And so I felt like I had found my home. Oddly, I was also in another country studying this. And so I think that's like the fun twist of the story. So I came back my senior year. I was debating between, do I want a PhD in philosophy and go that route? Or do I want to go psychology? Ultimately, I realized... While I like staring at walls and being an introvert, (laughs) I also probably, it wasn't going to be good for my mental health. Um, So I decided not to go the philosophy track. It's also, it's a very hard discipline to be successful in. Um, Very difficult. And really academics is one of the primary ways you can use a PhD. There's certainly other ways, but the doors were, Mm. fewer doors were open in that world. I felt with industrial organizational psychology, however, a degree in that at the PhD level every door was open to me in my mind. And that was something that was really important to me. At that stage of your training, looking at a future of, oh, okay, this IO psychology route, there's lots of doors open. What specific doors were you looking at? Like, what were you seeing that you were interested in at that time? That's a great question. What doors was I looking at? I always feel like I'm in a moment of the matrix when I talk about that. (laughs) And I'm like, which door do I open? Oh my gosh, what world am I going to end up in? And which color pill am I taking? Um, I I think the doors that were curious to me that I didn't yet feel like I had enough experience with to be able to make an informed decision about my life over was really this concept of doing research for research versus Mm. applying expertise to the world around me that drives impact. And that can occur in a number of ways, right? It's in the application of research because what's so fundamentally cool about science is that we're in this unique business of literally creating truth. And I remember someone one day put that that way to me and it had never occurred to me that very few people actually get to create knowledge and truth out of the Mm -hmm. work that they do, right? A lot of people are using other people's 
knowledge or truth to build on. Right. And I was like, that's so cool. That's amazing. Like, that's amazing. But what we do with that, I think is even more amazing of how we take the truths that science can create and well, not really create, but uncover is the reality, right? Because they should be objectively existing in the world around us. Yeah, and put words to. Right? Yeah, exactly. And articulate goes back to the logic thing, right? Like I'm put, yeah. I'm putting numbers to words, like I'm combining these things. And start to apply that in a way that actually drives people to be better. And that's where the organizational psychologist in me, right? And the human performance focus, I think that I've always had has been of how do we use that knowledge to inherently improve very fundamentally? And how do we use that to understand human behavior from an ethics standpoint, from a productivity standpoint, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. whether you're getting paid for work or not being paid, you're just doing it because you like it. How fundamental is it to us finding purpose? I mean, people, there's research showing people live longer lives that work, like it's mm-hmm. just such a basic tenant of how humans operate in their societies, no matter what that structure is. And so being able to dive into that and also apply it was really important to me, but I didn't yet have an understanding of how I was going to fit some of those worlds together. And I'll be honest, that's, I don't have an understanding right still. <laughs> I, I just keep trying to figure it out as I go. And one day I'll, I'll figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. So, you know, I I find your answer to my question actually really interesting because I think a lot of students who are at that juncture point of like, do I want to go psychology route? Do I want to go philosophy? Do I want to go social work, something else? Their understanding of what becoming a clinical psychologist is, is very different from that. It's typically clinical work with patients. I'm going to, to help people get better. And it sounds like you very keenly had a pulse on the environment at which people operate in and pairing your interest in philosophy and logic to solutions and finding answers and and understanding and putting words to the way things are, which I think is a unique perspective for somebody considering, you know, a career, uh, really not have even really studied IO psychology, it sounds like. So I feel like it's a unique perspective at that time for, for a student. You're not the first to have told me that. It's the only perspective I have, and it's a way I think. But mm-hmm. I generally approach decisions as what's the core component I'm trying to drive towards? Like, what's the point, right? I don't think in silos. You can even see that in the research and the work I do. I tend to operate on the edge of topics and at the intersection point of multiple topics. Um, Mm -hmm. Silos drive me crazy. Like, I just imagine a box and I just want to like break out of it. Like, break it. (laughs) I just don't, I just don't do it. Um, Because that's actually not how the world is. Those are arbitrary things that we as humans apply to the world to create patterns and reason around us. Mm -hmm. And they are valuable and they allow us to have a sense of control and all those things that go with that, which is as humans important for our psyche. But equally, I think it sometimes can stifle our creativity and innovation. And so when I look at my education, when I look at the decisions I'm making, I still go back to the core of what is it I'm trying to do? And then where does that best fit into the boxes that exist in the world around me? 
And I think IO is a good example of that, right? It's like, what are the core things that I get out of IO? It's these core things for me. But the reality is, I could go get a degree in any of number of other things that could also get me there. They just get me there differently. And um, mm-hmm. I do think a lot of people approach their education as, I want to be a clinical psychologist because I want to see patients. Well, guess right. what? You could go be a social worker. You could go be a psychiatrist mm-hmm. and get your medical degree. You could go about that in actually a lot of different ways that mean different things in that journey. But you have to figure out what that right mix is of the things that make you happiest and give you the most purpose, but also like fit you in terms of how you tend to act, because that's where you're going to see that sweet spot of your performance melding with the situations environments you're in. And so it's always about optimizing your contacts with you. And I just, I mean, if I, when I'm talking to other students, I see it that way too. I, I talk to them about like, what are you trying to get out of this? Like as a scientist, right? Like what's the criterion? If yeah. you don't know what you're trying to get out of it, then like, we need to figure that one out first because otherwise yeah, you you're shooting in the there. dark. Yeah. yeah. Like you're just going <laughs> to drive to nowhere. Like this is not a good plan. <laughs> That's a bad plan. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's maybe fun, but like it's your life and you, you know. So I do think that that's just, I mean, this is a whole diatribe I'm going on right now, but like, I do think it's really important. People know why they're making decisions for themselves and it's okay to not always know where it's going, but it's important to know where you hope it goes and, you know, to stay flexible. Right. You know, it brings me to this point in your mind. I think we ask all our speakers this question, like in your mind, what is military psychology? And I'll ask it from your perspective. When you joined military psychology, what did you hope, you know, to get out of it? And where did you hope to, you know, end up being? Yeah. So that's a really good question for me. Cause I think I viewed military psychology as part of my secondary professional identity and being Mm -hmm. an IO is my primary. And I think that comes from the fact that I was first trained as an IO. The military psychology came due to the context I was in. And it continues to persist in terms of one of my professional identities. But at the end of the day, the tools I apply to the context of the military or veterans communities are still generally IO tools because those are the ones I'm trained and have expertise in. Hmm. So for me, military psychology is about applying principles of psychology, if you will, your tool chest of the tools you have from whatever discipline you were trained in in psychology to the context in application for military veterans, national security, and military family populations. That's what it is to me. I think Mm -hmm. it's, it's different for different people, I think in part depending on that primary versus secondary identity, however. And more and more, there are graduate programs that are military psychology graduate degrees. So if that is what you're getting a degree in, then your identity Mm -hmm. and definition of military psychology is likely very different from mine. And in my case, it's much more about what, like the population I study or what variables am I studying? Because one of the first things I noticed when I became a military psychology, when I, I decided to put on the uniform after I had finished my PhD, which is a little bit of a different trajectory than many people as well, is that my criterion, which typically in IO is performance, job satisfaction, and occupational health, it became instead, when I was doing research for the military in my first assignment, anxiety, depression, 
suicidal ideation and morale. And it was like, what is this stuff? Like that, these are clinical, like, well, morale is not, Very but like, clinical. these are clinical things. Like, uh, right. I don't know the DSM. Yeah. I wasn't trained to do this. And so quickly, like I gained a new expertise and that's phenomenal because it's, it's allowed me to have conversations that have greatly amplified the work I was previously doing in IO within that world. And again, like be the person to find the intersections, but it is different in the stuff you're studying and how you're blending that information. And I do think people have to have some appreciation for how difficult that can be. Because going back to being getting trained up as a physician, you don't just go to one residency when you become mm-hmm. an expert, right? You go to a series of residencies and you know different types of training to become that expert. And for an IO who can go and get a job right out the door after they defend their dissertation unlike a clinical that needs to go, you know, go for a year on internship or something like that, that additional training to become more specialized is not actually typical. And it was not in my mental mindset, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I showed up in my first assignment, like ready to rock and roll. I'm an IO with a PhD versus my (laughs) colleagues that were military psychologists in uniform that had pharmacology degrees or clinical degrees Mm -hmm. or, or other degrees that require an internship to demonstrate that they're credentialed we're used to that mental mindset of like another period of schooling. Yeah. And that was very different for me because in my mind, I was ready to go versus others reviewing it as I need a postdoc. And I think that certainly also impacts how people engage with the discipline. Yeah, that's awesome. And I am referring to this idea about having this primary identity as a, as a psychologist and, and a secondary one. And, and I think, and for me, if for no one else, I think I, I struggle with the trying to define or give definition to military psychology and what it means to be military psychologist. And the way that you put it, it's almost as if, you know, you can parse it out. You know, there is the, the experience that I have, the expertise that, that I have, and this is how I see psychology. And I bring it to the context in which, you know, military happens. And that's how I become a military psychologist. And I don't know. That's very fresh and, um, you know, a different way of thinking. I never thought about that before. And that's kind of one of our like goals of this show, right? Is, is to kind of reach the student who's has a different perspective than we have. I mean, Keen, you and I both are clinically focused and our training has primarily been patient care. So our perspective is going to be different from many other students out there that are studying IO psychology or specifically planning to do research yeah. who might not really consider, you know, air quote, military psychology as a career path because they just aren't really familiar how to navigate and get into the service or, you know, in with a VA because a lot of what's put out there is, is the clinical focus. Yeah. So I want to take a brief step back. We kind of went on a tangent there, which is great. But Dr. Sabo, could you talk a little bit about, you were talking about undergrad and then the decision to go to graduate school and pursue IO. Tell us a little bit about that trajectory and then, you know, getting, you know, formally getting your degree and then moving on after that. What was your first kind of job? Yeah, I'm good at tangents. So hold me accountable. (laughs) We we are. Uh, So there's that. (laughs) (laughs) It makes it more fun. Um, So I decided to go IO, right? Like I I said yes to IO. Mm -hmm. I applied to, I think, like seven or eight programs because I was coming from this very small liberal arts school. I actually refer to as a a pre-grad school. Like everyone (laughs) from that school goes to grad school. Like that's why you're there kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like a prep school for grad school in retrospect. It's kind of humorous. 
It, it really is, but also probably underappreciated in that way when you're there for what it is. So yeah, I, I applied to schools, but I didn't really have a sense of how competitive I was going to be because I was in this very small sea. Like the school has fewer than 2,000 people. Um, it was mm. smaller than the high schools I went to, right? Oh. Mm-hmm. And so you don't necessarily know where you're going to fit in this like huge world of competitive PhD land, as I call it, because I'm not in the competitive land of PhD <laughs> land. I'm at an undergrad that only does undergrad degrees. And so I applied to a variety of tiers of schools. I felt that I would be competitive, but you just don't know till you're there. And so I lucked out, like I found three programs that I ended up really liking. And I got, I got into more than three programs. I think I didn't get into like two. So like, let's normalize that you don't get into every program you apply to. That's normal. Just like you don't get every job you apply to, like whatever, find the next one. So I got into several, you go on the campus visits. They're really fun and they're so informative. And I know in the COVID era, these things aren't happening, but they will return. Mm -hmm. Um, they're so informative because it matters so much in grad school, whether or not you fit with the people because they are your lifeblood. Like they are your social support. You're living in classes Mm -hmm. all day with them. A lot of times your roommates, you're working with them. Like it's your life if you're a full-time PhD student. And it was so important for me to get onto campus and meet with people because pretty quickly I knew if I, I could see myself there or I couldn't. So I did, you know, I did those visits. And so I was down to Portland State, Clemson, and University of South Florida, all of which are phenomenal IO programs. And I was waitlisted at University of South Florida. So most schools actually let in more people than they actually have spots for in terms of doctoral degrees for each cohort. USF, however, is a very competitive program. It's consistently in the top 10 and has been for decades for IO psychology in the United Mm -hmm. States. And they, right. a few years, a few cohorts before me had every single person except the one year, which meant they had a cohort that was like twice the size of what they intended. Oh, wow. And so they stopped that practice. Um, and so they started having a waitlist. So I was actually waitlisted at US. So let's also normalize yeah. that like, it's okay to be second. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it's totally yeah. fine. You still made the list. 100%. So I visited and I just fit. Like it just made sense to me. And mm-hmm. So I waited anxiously. It was like, (laughs) if I get in there, I'm going. And if I don't, now I have a really hard decision to make between two awesome programs and advisors that like, I also really fit with well. Well, I got into USF. It was this awesome moment of disbelief of like, I got into a top 10 IO program. This is awesome. (laughs) This is amazing. Sure. And so I went to USF. I, it just, it was a great fit for me. And one of the things that fit for me being the person who doesn't, like to work in silos <laughs> was that they don't have a mentor mentee model in which you only work with your advisor. They allowed IOs to work across advisors on different types of projects. And that was really instrumental for me. I knew what my areas of study I generally wanted them to be. I wanted occupational health psychology and leadership predominantly. Motivation got it added to the mix once I started understanding what motivation research included. If you look at those three terms and topic areas from an IO perspective, they're still study. But if you look at them present day from a military psychology perspective, they exactly define the human performance dimension. Wow. Right? They're performance psychology as we know it today. It wasn't really a thing that was talked about back then. The positive psychology movement was just getting going. I had an interest, (laughs) but 
it was just getting going. And yeah. so yeah. interestingly, I'll talk about my grad school experience more, but flash forward to when I joined the military, one of the reasons I did was because they were starting to blend all those things together before everyone else. Mm. And I was blending those things together. So I was like, awesome. You're like, yeah, that's cool. I want to do that too. And so I actually, I mean, my six years of active duty and now I'm in the reserves, I got to do that. Like I, I got to be at the front end of those conversations of blending it and discussing. I remember being in a meeting talking about like what the definition of human perform or performance psychology even should be, right? Like it's not just sports psychologists. It's not just an operational psychologist. It's, it's like, Hey, over here, I'm, I'm an IO. And yeah. those are literally the areas of expertise mm-hmm. I have too. Um, and, and so it's, it's fun. How did you find out that the military was uh, blending all those things and you're blending all those things and you, you know, and the opportunity to join, to be a part of that? Networking. Right. Um, you know, number one advice for any <laughs> student or professional is like, everyone should be your friend. I don't network to like find my next opportunity. I network because I find people fascinating and I find their work fascinating. Right. And so everyone in my mind is my friend. And 10 years down the line, that friend might be come in handy for something, or I might come <laughs> in handy for them. I don't know, but I just, yeah. I find people interesting, right? Like I study the workplace. So it, I guess it makes sense that I like hearing what people do. But mm-hmm. so when I was looking at IO programs, I'll name names. So Tom Britt actually helped introduce me to the world of IO. My advisor in undergrad sat on Tom Britt's dissertation committee. And, and Tom Britt is a military psychologist. He was trained as a social psychologist, now really is more of an IO psychologist at Clemson. Phenomenal researcher, phenomenal practitioner, and even better mentor. So I started talking to Tom Britt in undergrad. I almost went to Clemson to study with him. I ended up not, and we stayed in touch. And I felt comfortable asking him questions about career trajectories that I wasn't quite ready to admit to other people. Because I, going back to my grad school experience, I was dappling in a few different areas. I was funded by quite a bit of military research. In fact, I was, I was doing some human factors research in an IO lab simply because it was military funded and I wanted that experience. Not so much that I was into the human factors research. It turns out, I think it's interesting to read and I do not want to do the research myself. It's not interesting for me to do. Um, really valuable to know that. But I was funded by an Air Force grant. I was funded by DOD work and it, it gave mm. me an introduction mm. to that research in military psychology in retrospect as a context. And so I continue to amass experiences getting funded by the DOD or congressional grant researching the Air Force or things of that nature on different topics. But I also continued these conversations with people that I got introduced to just like curiosity, like, what does that look like? And so it was Tom and I would chat like a couple times a year, maybe once a year. And every now and then I could tell it was, you know, it was on the phone. He probably had a smirk on his face when he said this. So I hope he listens to this one day of like, well, let me know if you'd like to talk to other military psychologists. And every year I'd be like, no, 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 no. I'm not joining. Like, no, 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 no. That's what my dad did. No. Um, and he'd just be like, okay. And we'd like keep on talking about what we talked about. But it was, it was my fifth year in grad school. And I went on the job market. I was the IO psychologist. And most, most people in industrial organizational psychology decide somewhat early on if they want to be more research or more practice. 
And more practice for an IO means you work in a company, perhaps internally, likely situated in HR, but you're, you're an expert. Or you might work externally at a vendor or a consulting firm, or you might say go into government and work as a research psychologist, but really, you know, an applied psychologist applying the research to action. Well, I couldn't decide. Like all of these things make sense to me. Again, I don't fit into like the boxes very well. Like I'm just really obnoxious like that for people. (laughs) I just couldn't decide. So I, I prepped myself for both, which is tiring, by the way, if you're a student. Be aware of what you're doing to yourself. Uh, <laughs> but yes. I, I, I was like, oh, we're just get ready for both. But really, it's because I had an interest in policy and strategy, and I just didn't know to put my finger on that quite yet. So I, I you know, did a summer fellowship at RAND, for instance, you know, the large public policy think tank. I exposed myself to those types of experiences. So again, I could better understand and be informed about where I was headed. Well, the time I hit my fifth year, I put myself in the academic job market. I was like, this makes sense. And frankly, it's a lot easier to go academic and then applied than to go applied Mm. and then back to academic, like academia. Because to be Mm -hmm. in academia, you have to have a research record and it needs to be impressive. Like it has to be competitive, right? Yeah. And you need to have your topic areas of expertise. But when you go applied, a lot of times you succumb to whatever your employer needs you to do. You're not Mm -hmm. driving that ship anymore. And so it's easier to start academic and then realize, this isn't for me, and then go do something else than the other way around. So I thought, eh, okay, I seem to be like reasonably okay at the academic thing. Let's do it. Went on the job market. I actually got a job. It should have been my dream job. It was tenure track. It was in a business school, which for IOs means a far more lucrative lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Business schools pay more than psychology departments. It was a reasonable teaching load. It was a reasonable expectation for publications for tenure. Like it was everything I should have wanted. And it Mm. felt like a door was closing, going back to the Mm. matrix moment of the doors in front of me. I felt like accepting that actually was closing some doors for me. And that was not the feeling one should have when they're embarking on their first job that should be a dream job. Right. And so it was... um, it was a pivotal moment of my development and one everyone inevitably has, perhaps I should have had it much earlier, of <laughs> this is someone else's dream. This is not my dream, which unfortunately for that school that offered me the position, I feel quite bad because they had to give me the job in order for me to have that lesson for myself learned, which, you know, is a fault like is not good for them, but it was so instrumental for me and an important life lesson that I hold with me when I make other decisions of, I don't have to rely on someone else's thoughts about what I'm good at to make that decision. I need to rely on what I think I want. And if maybe I'm not the best at it, it's actually still okay if it's the thing I want and that is going to give me purpose and happiness. So In the process of turning down that job, I had a very busy two weeks. So I had two weeks to decide once they offered it to me. And I was on the phone every single day, multiple times a day with different people, different mentors, different colleagues, different friends that knew me really well, people from the past, people from the present, people who connected me to other people of like, hey, you should talk to this person. I was on the phone becoming the most informed person I could be in terms of if I'm going to turn down this thing that should be my dream, I better have something else figured out here. Like otherwise people are going to start questioning my sanity. So Tom, going back to Tom to bring this story to a close, 
was one of those people I called up, right? Because the going comment was, well, just let me know when you want me to make the call, which meant to make the call to someone in uniform that could actually speak to you about being a research psychologist in uniform. Mm -hmm. And so it was at that point, I said, Tom, I need you to make a call. (laughs) I need you to introduce me to some folks because I think this thing has been nagging on me for a while. And I've just tried to deny that I am actually interested in putting on the uniform. Mm. I've been doing the research for years and I know how hard it is to get that population to buy into me as an expert without having also been one of them. And oftentimes as a scientist, that is the exact thing you don't do, right? Like you don't become part of the group that you're studying. But in this case, because the culture is so strong about in-group, out-group, and do you get it or not, I actually realized that to make an impact with regards to strategy and policy and programmatics at a high level for the military, I needed to also have the experience to be able to have better empathy and understanding and to wrap my head around it. Because there are certain experiences in the military that I don't think no matter how hard you try or how deeply you dive into the thought experiment, you never will fully understand unless you go through it. It's just such profoundly deep human experiences, such as contemplating your own mortality, you know, in your mid twenties before you deploy. Mm -hmm. That's not something that people easily do because they naturally are inclined to not want to contemplate their mortality, particularly early in life. And so I just, I realized through a lot of reflection in these conversations that this was something I needed to do. Service was really important to me. It was something I couldn't do later. So that timing of when your career takes different leaps and follows different paths is really important. And the military, there's an age limit, right? Yeah. So it was something I couldn't do later. Unlike the academic practitioner debate, like, ah, do one of them later, whatever. The military, you can't do later. You got to do it now or not. Mm-hmm. And so I decided, I was like, all right, let's check this thing out. And I, I talked to people from each service. I gained an understanding of the type of research they were actively doing and what my job would be as a research psychologist in each service because it looked Mm -hmm. different as did their focus areas. I had some sense of that based upon the funding and the grants I had already been on from an IO perspective of what the Air Force is focused on versus what the Navy is focused on versus how the Army is approaching it. What's the DOD doing? What does Congress care about right now, right? In terms of their funding. Sure. I had some sense of that as well so I could make an informed decision. And for me, given the things that were important, the army made the most sense. And so fortunately, I was able to connect right into the consultant for research psychologists in the army and have some conversations in that two-week period um, very quickly to go like, is this what I'm going to commit to? And I did. So I said no to the academic tenure track business school job. And I said, hey, army, I'm coming. Let's make this happen, which... Of course, we all know is never a guarantee until it's a guarantee. <laughs> and the rest, I guess, is history. Well, I think it's it's super interesting that you were focused on research and you were really interested in applying that, doing research and applying that to make change in an organization or on a programmatic or policy level. Throughout your research and discussions with each branch, what did you learn about each branch and how they operated a little bit differently back then? For example, we know the Army has research psychologists, and that's a specific billet that you can get into. The Air Force isn't that way, at least not that I understand it. 
And I'm also curious too, like your dad, he's in the Air Force, right? And you choosing to go into the Army, I wonder, you know, what he said to you back then. Well, I think the comment from my dad was, you've lived a pretty easy life. Are you sure you want to do that? (laughs) (laughs) Which probably maybe me was like, "Um, well, now I'm going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Challenge accepted. (laughs) Pretty much. Like, well, now I think I need to prove this to myself that I can do the army. And I know I can, but you're right. I have lived a pretty easy life and okay. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. it's never bad to be called out on your privilege if we're being honest, right? Sure. So let's do it. So in, in terms of where we were at then, and, and this was 2012 for reference. Okay. Yes, the Army had the clearest program and trajectory for me to enter. I would say clean cut, if you will. Air Force, you know, there's work up in Dayton, Ohio with the, I think it's the 7-11th Performance Wing right? Mm -hmm. That's where I would have ended up with the Air Force. I Mm -hmm. coincidentally, well, probably not surprisingly, ended up when I was at the Pentagon for my last assignment, I was working with that group of people in the Air Force on some projects, you know? So like, I still ended up working with these different groups that I would have been part of had I gone a different service path. You know, the Navy doesn't use research psychologists in the same way. They really use them more to like travel and run focus groups and those types Mm -hmm. of conversations, at least at that time. The Marines don't have much of a presence. They kind of repurpose their psychologists to play those type of strategic roles. So the Army in many ways was the clearest path, but the other deciding factor for me, because I knew I was joining so that I could do research that informs policy and strategy. Like that was ultimately what interested me so much. And also that I could do it as a civilian, but it would probably take a decade or more to get the decision-making table. But by putting on the boots, I was at that table day one. And that's actually not an understatement. I deployed six months. Well, I guess it was seven or eight months into my, like after I joined the army. And I was actually in the like private conference room of General Milley when he was in charge of Afghanistan, like advising him on leadership and research Within, I, I guess, nine months is the trajectory of joining. Less like, than a so year like, into your military career. Yeah. Well, like, and that's a whole nother conversation of like my level of apparent confidence at the time. Of like, <laughs> yes, let me tell you yeah, yeah, yeah. what you should do better for leadership. I mean, there's some legitimacy there, right? Like I did have expertise in a different way from say someone who sure. grew up, experienced it, and is clearly a phenomenal leader and like continues to be a CJCS. But yeah, I mean, I got to do that. Like, that's kind of crazy story. At the time, I was like, whatever, let's just do this thing. It's <laughs> um, just what I do. But it's kind of crazy. Like, I was in a room, like, a few months after I put on the boots, like, kind of comedically, you know, giving <laughs> advice that I was I was able to give. But, um, you know, I, I probably could have been humbled a little bit more before I walked in that room. <laughs> But that also speaks to like, you know, how they view us as psychologists, you know, how important we are. And, you know, you're fresh off, off the boots and, you know, nine months into the military and all of a sudden you're in a, in a General Milley's uh, private conference room advising him on, on leadership. And I don't know about the confidence piece, but, you know, the part about us being psychologists, being the expert and both, you know, as researcher and also uh, as a, a clinician applying what we know into the field. You know, that that speaks to, you know, the unique role that we play in the military and how important we are to some of these uh, policies and changes that people do. 
I do think that's a really great point of the very unique role psychologists and other, you know, experts, true experts that are credentialed can get to play in the military and really the federal government more broadly. When I talk to IOs, when they're exploring their career trajectories, I always say like, don't discount federal service. Mm -hmm. It's one of the only sectors where you can get hired to be a research psychologist, meaning you still get to be both the researcher expert and also the person applying the knowledge in a meaningful way. Like that is a really unique mix that you don't find in that many other places. The only place right now that it's predominant in in broader industry is actually in the tech sector. So if you look at big firms like Facebook or Amazon or Google's, they're hiring up IO psychologists to be researchers like crazy. Yeah, It's a research scientist role, like it's a title. But like, you don't actually see that type of role many other places. And and so you do have to call it out because when I was in my basic leadership course for the army, I remember there was a clinical psychologist teaching one of our sections. And of course I was the awkward one in the room because I direct commissioned, I already had the PhD. So I'm a captain in basic, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. the same rank as the instructors, which who cares, (laughs) but got it. The instructors care Mm -hmm. and I get it. So, you know, you play the game that's, you learn to play the game because you're mature enough to know what's going on in the world around you. And I remember him pointing to me and saying, and she's the one who's going to get you money. So make friends with her. And I was like, what? No, whatever. But he's, (laughs) he's right. And the government and particularly for the DOD, it's congressionally mandated that if there are things particularly psychologically oriented or health oriented, they require that there's research backing it up. And so when things go to Congress, those words that are written are so specific because you you have to be able to parse them out and back them up with something like justification, Mm -hmm. whether it's a research study, whether it's data, whether it's something that has been done to demonstrate that that is a valid ask. And so he actually is right. Particularly in the military, the researchers are everyone's best friends because If the researcher doesn't have findings to support what you want to monetize, if you will, in terms of funding, you're kind of dead in the water. And so I don't think most research psychologists, both civilian and in uniform, realize, at least when they're entering, the impact of the role that they will have, like in that role that they will have, because that's kind of profound. And it was very top of mind and, you know, experienced every day in my second assignment at the Pentagon, because I was the chief for science and research integration. And Mm -hmm. so I frequently was writing responses to Congress that would go into, you know, the nifty binder that you see whatever multi-starred individual reading from, right? Like (laughs) people write those Mm -hmm. things that they read. Mm -hmm. I would write some of them. And I was writing them and working with our communicators because the language had to be so specific that it could stand up to like another scientist poking holes in what was said. So research informed versus evidence-based versus all of these words actually matter. And I got to play that role of like really parsing through what can we claim here? We might not be able to claim it's this, but I think we can claim it's that or we can't claim it. We need to go do some research and fund it. I think you're talking about something that we've broached on this show a couple of times previous, but I think is a huge value to 
working as a psychologist within the Department of Defense. And likely, I don't know, I don't have a background in this, but likely also in the VA is that research collecting data has the potential to make such a profound impact on the system or a unit or some sort of command group in a pretty profound way, or I guess I should say a lot more efficiently than working with an individual patient is going to make an impact. I mean, clinically, you can work with somebody for weeks, months, plus. And yeah, maybe you do make a significant impact in that person's life, but doing research and tracking data, crunching numbers, and then providing recommendations based on that information or informing policy based on that information can lead to change, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people impacted as a result. And I think that that's such a unique position that psychologists play within the military that I think is really fascinating, interesting, and fun and powerful, right? I mean, we do hold a lot of power in these roles the multi-starred individuals are reading it, agreeing with it, and then using it as their claim to push for, you know, financial support or to change the way something happens. So I think you're, you're talking about making big impact, which is really cool. Yeah. And I think that's such a great point. And mo- more than that, too, is that military psychology, you know, as a profession is unique in that way that you, you have opportunity to either choose to make an impact on an individual level, being a clinician, working with people in, in therapy setting, in therapeutic setting, one-on-one, or you can uh, seek out those opportunities to apply your knowledge, your, your expertise, and inform policies and making, you know, systemic change in that way. So, and I always like that about the military psychology, that the opportunities, there are just so many of them. If you want, you know, to just focus on individual impact, can do that. Or if you want something, you know, that's larger, you know, policy based, there is those opportunity for you to seek out to make a broader, larger impact all across the military. Yeah, it's much broader. So, uh, Dr. Sabo, I'm curious how you got to the Pentagon. <laughs> can, you, can you? Where was your first assignment specifically? Yeah, so my first assignment was at Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. Cool which is an extension of Fort Detrick. And then my second assignment, I three years in, I, I headed to the Pentagon to be in the Army G1, which is their version of HR. So under the mm-hmm. deputy chief for personnel. At the time, General McConville actually was that, and I was in the Army Resilience Directorate. So that was one of the many organizations that direct reported into the G1. And their mission focused on resilience, suicide, and substance abuse. So... Mm. A really fun assignment. I had so much fun in that assignment because it was very IO. So a lot of the assignments available to research psychologists still had a bit more of a clinical or programmatic or a cognitive or they just weren't as IO. And Mm -hmm. so I was thrilled to have the opportunity to be able to actually go like be an IO and do occupational health psychology and see that convergence of all those things I talked about that I gained expertise in kind of come to bear into one thing. Mm-hmm. and do it for policy and strategies. So that job actually introduced me to the world of strategy work. And it turns out it's something I'm natural. It comes naturally to me. It's not something I was trained up in grad school on. Same with policy. I've always been interested in both, just never really put my finger on it. That job enabled me to pull those three things together, research strategy policy for the first time. And that's actually now where I sit professionally, So I I was at the Pentagon for three years, tremendous opportunity, 
in terms of my growth, most people at the Pentagon are towards the end of their career if they're in uniform and or they're, you know, civilian. And I was, you know, in my second assignment as a captain. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I got so much mentorship. Oh my gosh. Oh, it was amazing. I was like the single child, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it was just outstanding from a professional development and exposure perspective. And to just be, even be able to be part of the discussions I was in, right? Like developing national strategy for our, for suicide, developing, you know, the prevention strategy and, and mitigation strategy for risk. Like those are incredible. And so I left the army. I got out of active duty from that position. And I, I debated whether I wanted to go into a GS position actually in that same office, or if I wanted to kind of stretch my wings a little bit and go into the civilian world. Mm-hmm. And again, I had this moment of what am I going to do? And this job offer, like quite literally, fell on my lap via a, a friend, like right. So networking again, just she was like, "This job sounds like you," and I was like, "Wow, that does." Um, and it was to join this talent strategy team at Boeing that they were standing up that was really meant to shake things up in terms of strategy, what we were doing. And it was it was supposed to be a group of innovative people who think differently. And I was like, this is all, yeah, I'm all over this. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, just get it. It was like, get it done type of job. Like think differently, drive it, lead it, be creative, bring in the research. And I was like, cool. And that came, that fell in my lap right as I was debating all these things. And I realized once again, I can come back to the government later. Sure. It's going to be harder over the course of a career though, to take a risk and jump out. So I decided that it was a good opportunity to go do strategy first, research second, and to take that job and to understand what the corporate world was all about, which is also a very important just understanding of how different worlds work and play together. And so, I, yeah, I got out of active duty at that point. I, I did really love my time at the Pentagon and it forever transformed me in terms of my skill set where I realized some of my strengths were that I maybe would have not otherwise had the opportunity to. And now at Boeing, I actually, my role has grown. I ended up in charge of the team I joined. And now I'm also in charge of employee listening, which is a lot of survey work and organizational research. So it kind of comes full circle that I get to lead all those things that I was doing before. And with that, I got to actually write the first strategy I wrote was Boeing's veterans and military spouse strategy for their employees. So I get to be their internal leader for HR on that topic, which, you know, military psychology doesn't only exist in the federal government or in the active duty military or reserves. It exists in a lot of other populations. It doesn't just exist in the VA. I'm still doing military psychology in my day job at Boeing. And I'm part of corporate. I'm not a I'm I'm not a contracted person at Boeing, like working on a government contract. Like I'm in the center core of Boeing, but I still get to do this stuff. And I um I sit on advisory committees at the national level on veterans employment, military spouse employment. I get to have really interesting, fun strategy policy conversations now on the other side, and I I get to be a bit more free in what I say too. And I I get to connect with other corporate leaders and other national leaders as well. Like I got to selected to be part of President George W. Bush's Veterans Leadership Program a couple of years ago, which there's 43 people in my cohort. There were about 30 something in the cohort before me. So very, very selective. And I now have like this group of incredible friends 
from that experience that are just phenomenal national leaders. Like, it's amazing what some people are doing. I'm like, I know someone that's doing what? Like, they're a political <laughs> appointee. That's crazy. Like, what? Who is Super that? Cool. It's just like the trajectory has been incredible because I did kind of decide to spread my wings and try to get at the military psychology topic in a different way. And it again meant that professionally, yes, I've benefited, but even more so, it means that I get to just, you know, do the like unexpected, I guess, attack angle almost, right? But in some ways it's more impactful because there was a hole that needed to be filled. And in that situation, someone's got to fill it, right? Like someone's got to do it. So you just lean in. I'm wondering, other than that job opportunity that came up, when you were contemplating separating from active duty, what were some of the factors that were playing a role in your decision to get out or to take that third assignment? Can you talk a little bit about, you know, maybe it was family, what was going on then? Yeah, that was a big decision. One, I, I didn't feel like as a research psychologist, I professionally, outside of my military career, was going to have assignments that made me grow at the rate of acceleration I wanted. Mm-hmm. This in part was due to being an IO and that there weren't as many assignments that let me maintain that expertise and also the other expertise I needed to have. So that was part of it. Of listen, you know, they put me at the Pentagon. My dream job is my second assignment. What am I going to do? Quick. Yeah. <laughs> um, and to be honest, what's going to top that? Right? right. Well, and also the billet was actually for someone two ranks above me. Sure. So I should. I mean, I had a legit interview for that job, and and most people in the military don't have to interview for their assignments until you get mm-hmm. much more senior. Like I legit mm-hmm. interviewed for a few because they were not. They weren't so sure. And I, I have to thank Colonel Sipos, who's you know still in uniform mm-hmm. and our current president, because yeah. he was my boss when I was at Walter Reed Army Institute of Research at Rare. And he set me up for that position and he vouched for me. He was like, no, she's the right person for this. And I, I have to thank him for seeing that the trajectory I was on of like solely bench science wasn't going to be my passion. But if he put me on a trajectory where it was like, no, she can apply the bench science in a whole different way that a lot of people maybe can't. And he set me up for that. So yeah, but at the same time, I was like, what am I going to do for like the next 10 years until I'm a lieutenant colonel? I mean, like (laughs) that's that's a bit presumptuous. Every single assignment you grow and you learn things you never expected to. But at the same time, I just looked at those options and I knew that, they were willing to help appease me, right? Like there was never a sense that I wasn't going to get accommodated, which I also realize is not always the case. Like there's so much privilege in that statement. It's oozing with privilege as I say that. But it was also the case that there were certain assignments I didn't feel like I could take that were in my best interest because I had other things pulling at me, such as my husband's career, such as the Mm -hmm. fact that I now had a two-year-old son. Well, I guess he was one and a half at the time. Mm-hmm. And so as we started looking at it, given my husband's career and where he needs to be, which is in DC still, my next actually ideal assignment was going to be heading out to Mon- Monterey, California and probably doing a, a year with industry and then heading back you know, to DC then. And it was mm-hmm. like, as I looked at some of those options in the years before we had my son, it was a lot of thinking, well, do we want three years apart? I mean, we can survive that, but that means three more years before we have a kid. 
Mm-hmm. That's three more years of putting all these other things off. And at some point you have to stop putting mm-hmm. life off. Sure. And as a female, like it turns out I'm the one that's pregnant. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so even if the military is like supportive, like I'm still pregnant and having to do that and being physically distanced from the spouse, like what do you do then as a single parent? Like I have to give birth and feed the kid for a while. Right. So I can't just be like, oh, I'll come back on the weekends or like that doesn't work. So yeah, it it definitely played in. And I think that valuation of where you are at in life just started to really hit me of, Mm -hmm. I can make this work, but I also want to accelerate myself and my career and my development. And I'm a very patient, strategic, methodical thinker. But I'm also like, when I'm ready, I'm ready. As I said at the beginning, mm-hmm. right? Like when I, I know I want something, I want it. And I'm going to make it happen. Like I will move, I will move mountains when I see the mm-hmm. vision in mind and it matters, right? Like mountains will be moved. And so, yeah, I just, I hit that point where I realized the assignments would grow me, but not at the rate they had been the last three years in particular at the Pentagon. That I had so much more in me I knew I had to give. And that I really felt like getting out of uniform would let me spread my wings and have some freedom that I needed to have the impact I knew I could have. Mm -hmm. And I have yet to regret that. And then you went into the reserves, it sounds like. I did. That's a fun little story. I'm still figuring that one out. So um, if anyone has a really great reserve assignment for me, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) Good to know. um, So part of the storyline on that was that Oozing with privilege again here, the executive director of my directorate and I had a great relationship. So when I decided I was going to leave, I said, listen, I'm not opposed to the reserves, especially if I could continue serving at the Pentagon as an advisor. Like I would Mm -hmm. love that. Sure. I get to spread my wings and go do all this other cool stuff and experience the world and also still get to be this. Like, wait, Mm -hmm. now I'm getting why the reserves is a really sweet deal. So she actually yeah, that amazing. Yeah, right. So she actually was like really good friends with the general in charge of the reserves at the time. So again, oozing with privilege. Like that's and helpful. Networking plug. <laughs> right. Um, and so she was like, Well, I'll just like let me just call her up. Like, let me see what would be possible. Cause you're not the type of officer we want to lose. You're the type of officer the army needs to keep. Yeah. And like, wow, that's a huge compliment. Thank you okay, let's figure this out. Well, as everyone knows, like making a position in the military is is kind of not a concept. Um, I mean, it is at the right level, but it's kind of not still. So they started the process of literally making a job for me at the Pentagon, which is awesome. Felt special. But it turns out it takes a long time to make (laughs) mountains move in the military. Mm -hmm. Sure does. You can see where the story is going. Um, mm-hmm. All said leaders had moved on. <laughs> they they went to do jobs, which is also to be expected. And I was getting out right. They pushed really hard to make the position. But, you know, general in charge of the reserves retired. My boss, mm-hmm. within a year of me leaving that job, moved to another executive role. Mm-hmm. And so kind of my champions, if you will, left the picture, but there was still movement on it. I had fantastic recruiting command working on my very, very special case. That They're like, man, mm-hmm. you must be really, really important because of yeah. the people on this email chain. 
Yeah. Um, it's like, no, I'm actually not. I hate to break it to you. I don't know what's going on, um, but I'll go with it. Mm-hmm. And it honestly kind of just fell apart, but that was the intent. So I, I said, I'll stay at the reserves because I'm going to be a special. And I, I'm not as special now. I never was. It was just a nice moment to feel that special. And so now the reserve unit that was so kindly creating a position at the Pentagon for me, which is just entertaining statement to say over and over mm-hmm. um decided to adopt me oh. <laughs> they felt bad for me and they again said the line of well ma'am like you're not someone you're a good officer we don't want to lose you if we can keep you so let's try mm-hmm. to figure this out so i have been hanging out with them actually for the last year not okay. honestly providing them much value if i'm being honest but i try so hard <laughs> Mm-hmm. but I'm still not doing a lot for them. I sign things whenever they need an officer to. I get to do boards. I get to actually do army things that as a research psychologist, we don't do. Like we weren't in units typically. I'll, I Actually, I should say that differently. Many research psychologists are in units. They are tactically located, forward located. Mm-hmm. The assignments I had were not. And sure. so I didn't get that experience except when I would say like traveling to hand out surveys or when I was living with people in more tactical units when I was you know, deployed in the couple of months I was deployed, I, I should mm-hmm. also mention it was only a couple of months because researchers get in and out. Again, the privileged story of a researcher. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I now I hang out with this recruiting command. It's out of Fort Story, Virginia. I've actually learned a ton, even though I can't do much of the job that they do. And yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to find another home or I'll realize it's not worth the effort and I'll say thank you. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's actually kind of a cool story though, because you highlight how actually the military and specific leaders, if you talk to the right people, really value scientists and listen to people who, not just because you were a captain, but because you had value to somebody and you were making an impact in some way. And a lot of the times you get into positions and people don't necessarily know how to utilize you. But it sounds like from my perspective, people quite quickly figured out your value and were understanding how you and your recommendations or your drive to really dig into things was was potentially impactful and and there was something to value out of that. So they wanted to keep you around. And I think that's something that I've noticed just in my very short period of time wearing the uniform is that people do listen to you and really care about what you have to say when you're sharing something that's driven by data or when you're, you're very clearly emphasizing the research and the data that is behind some of the recommendations you're giving. So... I think that's a message that's important to be heard is that we do have value and it's not just in tertiary clinical care in a clinic. So that's really cool. I'm wondering if you'd be able to talk a little bit more about, and I heard that it, you know, it was brief, but your deployment, what exactly were you tasked to do on that deployment? Yeah. So I was part of mental health advisory team nine. You can look it up as NHAT nine. They're research teams that deploy about once a year, once every two years, related to deployment psychology specifically. And typically that those teams are very small, they're hand-selected, and they're predominantly research psychologists, but sometimes you'll get a social worker or a clinician also on the team. 
And the mission is to do research in a deployed zone. Mm-hmm. And it's basically like doing a dissertation in deployment. It's that doesn't sound very good, but <laughs> it, it is. Um, yeah. You go there, you literally like collect the data, you do focus groups, you get the data back, you analyze it while deployed, you write the reports, and then your ticket out of there is to brief it up the whole chain, which is how mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to brief General Milley, who was in charge of Afghanistan at the time. Brief it up the chain. Once they say okay, then you get to go home. So Mm -hmm. unlike a typical deployment that says, hey, you're going to be here nine months. Ours was, as soon as you're done with your homework, you get to go home. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So I always, I acknowledge how short it was because we had a six-member team of us going from Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, which is typically where those launch out of. Mm -hmm. So, and... Three members of the team went a month earlier than the other three members of the team to get the ball rolling, if you will, in terms of the survey distribution, all of those types of things. And then they went home six weeks earlier than the you know second three members of the team, the, the forward group versus the rear. And so I was in the rear. So they had already done some of the groundwork. And then when we showed up, we were like ready to rock and roll in terms of starting to do the surveys, run focus groups. So I did actually travel quite a bit of being the most junior member of the team. I later found out I was also traveling to the quote unquote hottest areas of Afghanistan. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. (laughs) Um, Traveling to some areas, honestly, with like infantry groups. And in terms of gender, it's important to note I was the only female on the team Mm. and the youngest. And it was it was quite obvious in a couple of the focus groups with the younger enlisted that they hadn't perhaps seen a female in a while. Mm. They like the focus groups were awkward is I guess the best way to put it. Cause they, sure. I was a female like captain and they were like, ma'am, I don't know if I can talk to you. Hmm. Um, fortunately I was traveling with another male officer who could use that tension, I guess you could say, but like gender sure. was a very real thing I found when I was deployed In terms of the advice I got before I went, I will tell you the consistent advice I got from every female I encountered and predominantly females of more senior ranks to me was, hey, come over here. Let me talk to you separately. Mm. You're the only female going, let me tell you how not to get raped. Mm. Like to put it bluntly, that was the conversation every time. Mm. Um, Psychologically, that does not put someone in a good place going into deployment. I was quite scared. I knew I had five men who would protect me at all costs, but I was living separate from them in separate facilities. I actually got better facilities than they did. Uh, So I can't complain, but there were real threats to me that were not part of the conversation for them going in. Now we all know based upon the numbers, male sexual assault and harassment occurs more frequently, but there's also more men of women, you know, the majority of women have experience in the military. I actually did have to make a sexual harassment claim with an, another individual that I had worked with, right? When I was in my first assignment. So I'd already been through that actually right before I deployed. And then that was the advice I was getting. Yeah, it, wasn't, it wasn't quite good. Um, no. But, you know, during deployment, it, it was fine. You kind of get used to it. But like I said, I was really not there for very long. And I can speak to deployment, but I, I always kind of bite my tongue in terms of the extent to which I really talk about my deployment experience because the phenomenal sacrifices that the vast majority of our military make in terms of the amount of time deployed and the amount of time outside of protected areas deployed. I mean, like that wasn't 
what I had. I had this experience where when we traveled, we only flew for safety. And being the only female, I I had to always go with someone. I remember one time I didn't have someone to go with because the way that our the travel worked out in terms of what was available to fly on from where we were and where we needed to go. And I remember being like, oh my gosh, they left me alone, which is mm. fine. I'm good at making friends. And so I'd always find another female to befriend wherever we went sure. because it was a lot more comfortable to be friends with a female walking around than like to be walking around with your boss or another battle buddy and either have people make comments because as a female, if you're always around the same male, inevitably someone's going to make the comment that like, that's inappropriate. And it's like, maybe they're my friend and they're my (laughs) battle buddy and I see past gender and this is my reality as a female that's a minority group. But there's just all these other things you're considering. And so in deployment, it was also unique because I was the only female on my team, which meant there was some segregation. My team was phenomenal in terms of like doing everything they needed to do. But there were very different conversations I had. There were very different conversations I had with other females while deployed about their experiences. And they would open up to me because they saw a psychologist in my name. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm not trained as a clinician, but they treated me like one, which was not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> right. But um, Not what you were there for. No, but I mean, I heard those things. And so I do wonder like how different psychologically that deployment experience was for me mm-hmm. walking into it having the advice of walk on this road only never walk on this part when it's dark, always have your knife nearby when you're going to the bathroom because you're most at risk because you like, you know, like don't have as much movement capable, right? You're in a, in a fixed facility where people can go in and lock the door, like things like that. It's, it's going, well, are men having these conversations? Like the fact that going to the bathroom was one of the most terrifying activities for me while deployed says a lot probably. And I do wonder like, how many other females in reality, if you really talk to them, sometimes their scariest moments are, are these very mundane activities that you don't think about, but are the times that you feel like you're most at risk. Yeah. I'm also wondering from a a sort of in the professional realm, what you were, you were there for was to conduct research and, and then brief commanders is what it sounds like, brief the leadership on what you found and how they can then make changes or implement something different. That's my, I guess my assumption. As the sole woman on the team, did you feel like your voice was heard as much as some of the male members of your team when you were giving those briefings? Yeah, that's a great question. I did. Again, I had a great team in terms of understanding that I was the young female on the team. As I mentioned before, too, I was not that far into my military career and I just Mm -hmm. finished my PhD. So that probably helped me, I guess, maybe overcome any sense of myself not giving myself voice because as we all well once you get your phd you kind of have this period of like i'm incredible i know <laughs> so much i'm a I'm doctor a right yeah. <laughs> it, like right. so i think i still had a little bit of that and i'll own that um which though probably played in my favor because i wasn't afraid to have voice like i'd speak up mm-hmm. i i do remember there was one brief we gave, and it was over video because I think it was to General Richardson, maybe that who, as a female, like we've seen her trajectory more recently too, as she's ascended in rank. And I think there were a few other generals in the call. And I remember someone asked a question about the scaling, the response options of the questions. And me being the IO on the team, I was kind of designated as a leadership expert and also really like the research methodology, like psychometrician in many ways. 
And I remember the question, the way it was posed, it almost came across, and I don't remember who said that, so don't attribute this to any names that I've given. The question was posed almost as if they were trying to prove that they knew what they're talking about research. And so I was sitting there and I was like, no, 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 no. So I remember typing in and I was like, no, I'm pretty confident in the scale responses that we use. They're this, this, and this. And I, I was referring to all these psychometrics, right? To kind of be like, calm down. Um, yeah. And it actually may have been one of like their XOs that were on the phone that were probably trying to like sound smart to their boss. Sure. And, I, um, and I gave this like very intelligent, polite, appropriate answer. But I actually remember after the meeting in this this was Colonel Sipos. I deployed with him. He said to mm-hmm. me, he was like, that was a really good answer, but you should probably use sir more often. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, mm, that's a valid yeah. statement. Fair. <laughs> so whether or not I felt like I had voice, yes, clearly. Yeah. Sure. Um, I also, though, learned how to have better voice that would be better received is why I kind of tell that story because it's still like... It, still cracks me up because it's like, yes, that probably was a bit sassier than I should have been. But <laughs> the fun part of that is actually now I'm, I'm recalling the story a bit more. The individual that asked the question that I gave the sassy, sassy-ish, like military sassy mm-hmm. response to actually ended up being our gatekeeper for when we met with General Milley. And he was someone who appreciated the sass. And mm. so he took a liking to our team and he really made sure we were well-prepped before we got into the door with General Milley, who is notorious for his sharpness and the depth of questions he will ask during briefings. And we, as a result, I know there are a lot of other factors, but I definitely remember the colonel on that call as a result of that response. And he, in part, because he told me later, he appreciated the expertise and passion of the response, I guess. I don't know that those Mm -hmm. were the exact words, but... And he, he saw that we were experts and he, he really wanted to make sure that like it was impactful because he saw the value of the work that we were doing and, and wanted to make sure it was received well. And so that actually, in many ways, like very oddly, <laughs> my sassy moment while deployed set us up for, I think, success in terms of, again, like building relationships that set us up for success in other ways. And I'm, you know, not shy to admit, obviously, there were a lot of other factors and people at play that made that successful. But I do remember that one moment and it was an example of my group making sure I had voice and others also recognizing Mm -hmm. that expertise gets voice, right? Um, Which is valuable. And I think it's something we find in the military that we talk a lot about the things that aren't going well. And there's there's a lot culturally Mm -hmm. that we need to work on. Like, don't get me wrong. I've experienced a lot of it. But one of the things I did appreciate is that if I showed up smart, capable, and prepared, I got a chance to shine. And Mm. that doesn't happen everywhere. Yeah. I'm curious about uh, the research that you actually did when you were there. What exactly were you you looking at? And what did you find? If you recall, that's not too far in the past. (laughs) Well, the good news is anyone can go Google it as well. Um, The reports are public. When the mental health advisory teams come back from those research studies, it gets reported all the way up to the Joint Chiefs of Staff and it goes mm-hmm. to Congress and it continues on. I wasn't part of all of those once we got back. I was not not in those rooms, but sure. I did I did at least get to hear about it. So the study was twofold for the mental health advisory team nine. That one was twofold, focused on small unit leadership and also mental health. So it is a study that gives us a benchmark on 
what mental health symptomatology looks like for deployed soldiers. Okay. Which is really important, right? From a deployment psychology perspective of what people are going through while they're deployed versus mm-hmm. before and after. And it, it gives that snapshot very intentionally through stratified random samples and things of that nature, working with different units okay. when they're deployed. And so sure. that was what it was focused on. But, you know, a lot of findings, most weren't phenomenally different from prior versions of MHATs. We did find some, right? And so that's also where some of the metrics coming out of where are, you know, of this percent of deployed individuals have depressive symptoms. Like those are the studies that that comes from. Sure. In addition, for our specific study, I remember one of the changes that occurred as a result of it was a lot of the work on sleep was starting at the time in terms of the focus on sleep research. Mm-hmm. And the importance of it and how it doesn't have to all occur at once, right? That you can take naps and do other things throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And so that was something that we actually were able to tease out in that study, looking at conditions that allow soldiers to thrive or not thrive. And, and sleep is one of those that we were able to pinpoint. And so some of the recommendations we made were really quite simple around putting people in the same room that are on the same work schedule. I mean, these things mm-hmm. sound really obvious, but a lot of times you just, people go where they go when they show up in deployment and then you don't shift them around even if their work schedules change. So you might have someone, you know, people in one room and there's four people or more living in one room. You have people coming and going at all times of the day and no one's therefore getting good sleep. So like really basic shifts and how you're doing things such as put people on the same shift in the same room or put on doors, mufflers or things that make it so the door doesn't slam shut, right? Like really simple things that Mm. could improve people's sleep quality and that therefore could have like these really profound effects in terms of their ability to be resilient and cope and have stress. And of course, all of the more clinical mental health symptoms that can follow when you're not able to prevent them from occurring. So that was one thing very, very tangibly that I remember within a week, I think that was one of the things like before we could leave, we had to have a few info papers written on these tangible things that could be done to mitigate some of the findings that we found. And sleep was one of them. And and so we listed out Mm -hmm. several things that could be done to improve sleep quality for deployed soldiers. That's so cool. And sounds much more up your alley in terms of the health uh, implications there. It was, yes. Yeah. The IO pairing with the health side of things. So that's really cool. You know, I respect and understand the, the sort of the trepidation and not wanting to to really, you know, boast about the deployment experience, but it sounds like collecting really important data and making an impact on service members that are going to continue to rotate in and out of places like that. Now, you know, the announcement that potentially pulling out completely from Afghanistan. So that's interesting. But oh, and the other thing that I was going to say, sort of my reaction to the research you were doing at the time in that setting is, right, those things change over time. So X amount of service members experience anxiety or depression, right? Yes, there might have been prior findings, but those things change and those numbers adjust and there are military treatment facilities there that that are making changes. So, you know, how those things change in deployed environments, I, I think it's important to continue to collect data like that. It's exciting to have somebody who has done a significant amount of, I think, meaningful research in various military settings, because like we've already said today, it's not always that we hear talk about and pursue research as students and 
Well, I guess that's not necessarily true, but what I'm saying is sometimes it's too clinically focused and it's really exciting to have somebody that's not super uber clinically focused to share their experience. I want to be mindful of the time. What have we sort of talked about or what have we not really broached yet today that that you would like to talk about or you feel like is important to share? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I wove in some conversation of the ways military psychology can exist outside of the military proper. But I do think it's important to stress, especially to students, like the world is your oyster. And one thing I have worked very diligently on, even before I put on the uniform, was research focused on veterans' employment after they're in uniform. Hmm. And it's not just at the transition point, but like well beyond that. And also like work on military families. It's this group that we kind of pay homage to in word, but I feel like we rarely do indeed. Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to research and knowledge and the policy that follows. So I bring those two things up because whenever I talk to individuals starting to get into the field of IO, and I'm especially thinking of there's a growing group of individuals who are prior service that find IO after because it fits their interests. If you think about being in service, leadership, and how you motivate people, and how do you get the job done, like those are such critical and core competencies of the military culture. And those are things I owe studies. And so I'm starting to find more and more prior service individuals come and want to study IO. And because I leave for Division 14, which is a society for IO psychology, I've led for many years, actually, now their military and veterans efforts. And because of some of the other national efforts that I mentioned before that I've been just really honored to be a part of, people will reach out to me and ask me questions. And, you know, I I tell them like the world is your oyster right now. It's such an exciting time to be studying the topic of employment for this population or both populations really of military family members and spouses included, and then also veterans, because there's so little work that's been done. That's like rigorous in terms of the scholarship. There's very little theory that exists in terms of veterans employment and motivation and what Mm. that psychological trajectory looks like from like an identity formation and success of employment models and growth and all these things, there's just very little rigorous research. Most of it, when you look at the landscape is descriptive right now. There's increasingly good descriptive studies that are out there. There's some phenomenal institutes that have been formed up. You know, you look at the University of Syracuse, Institute for Veterans and Military Families, they're doing just tremendous work, right? There's a reason why they are at the front and everyone knows their name and they're kind of like the hub right now for this type of work. But what we still don't have is scholarship that's based in solid theory that drives towards psychological models that Mm -hmm. we can grow and build from, you know, regeneratively and iteratively, like we like to see with rigorous research. Yeah, And so... What's so exciting, I think, right now is that I'm starting to see people expressing interest and not just going, oh, that's interesting. That sounds like the future. But like they're taking action on it. And I am starting to see more and more people actually leaning into the topic. And that's just so exciting because it's such a needed conversation. The one thing you're guaranteed in the military, unless tragedy hits, but you are guaranteed a second career, right? Like, And when you're in uniform, you oftentimes culturally feel like you're a traitor for talking about it. Hmm. And that is not actually acceptable. That is a stigma that we should not accept. Because the thing that we are guaranteeing everyone is that you're going to have a career and you're going to need another career. 
And if you're stigmatizing talking about that next career, you're just undermining yourself and everyone around you. Yeah. And so the sooner we can get people realizing that it's healthy psychologically and in terms of your future success and for the military to be able to explore the world outside the military while serving, the better off the military is going to be as well. Because if the military shows that its people get incredibly awesome jobs when they get out, guess what? People are going to want to join the military. Right. Right? Like people go work for Google and Amazon because they see that they're highly sought after talent after they work there. Yeah. So it's such an interesting time for the topic around veterans employment, Mm -hmm. military spouse employment, policy and advocacy work. You look at, you know, second lady, Dr. Jill Biden, she's brought back up the joining forces work that she started back with Michelle Obama during the Obama administration, during the Trump administration, the second lady, Mrs. Pence also led the way in terms of military spouse employment and a lot of mental health considerations like prevents effort with the VA. Those are public-private partnerships. I get to go to the meetings on the corporate side of things. And there's just some like really profoundly cool work going on that is founded in psychology. Like mm-hmm. fundamentally, it requires psychologists in the room leading it. And I just think like we've got to open our eyes as psychologists to realize that our maximum input and impact is doing the research well and then helping people understand what to do with it, like translating it in a meaningful way to non-research audiences. Because if we don't do that, it goes on the shelf to die and you become the statistic where, you know, two people have read your article, which is Mm -hmm. cool and all, but (laughs) like, that's a lot of work for two people to read your article. Not making a huge impact. Yeah. Well, it sounds like Boeing is, and your work at Boeing is, is focused on this precisely. And what is that group's primary focus and how are you playing a role in that? Yeah. So part of my job, I guess you could say, I actually kind of made it part of my job, if I'm being (laughs) honest. (laughs) Clearly you're interested in it. (laughs) Um, It was already an expertise area and a passion. And so I get to do it. Um, And they've been game. So I'm fortunate in that respect that they've gone along with my delusions of grandeur. Um, But (laughs) Boeing, Boeing actually is an incredible organization when it comes to its veterans, because it has a very large percentage of veterans. Veterans make up about 7% of our U.S. population. At Boeing, we have 14% of our company are veterans. And it's in part because of our products, right? So we, we serve the government. We have many large Absolutely. you know, aerospace <laughs> products used, right. well, actually all, all the way into the sea. But also, like we have a lot of people that are veterans. And so as a you know fortune 50 company and you and i can talk about boeing specific but this actually applies to most large companies that they have some sort of veterans effort internally we do a lot of giving to the community it's actually very impressive and something i didn't have full appreciation for before i was in this world of the ways in which corporations through corporate social responsibility sustain our nonprofits and enable those services then for our military members or for their families or for our veterans, right? So that understanding that communal relationship, if you will, has been really a game changer for me in terms of just better understanding this ecosystem of the world that we live in for military psychology. I previously understood the defense side, right? I didn't, I hadn't yet cracked the nut on these other pieces of nonprofits and public private partnerships and where corporations sit. And now I'm like getting to crack that nut. And it's, it's just fun to me because it's like I unlocked a new door that I didn't know I needed to open. And like, I opened it like, yay. Um, (laughs) So 
I get to do that now. And I work very closely then with our government operations group because they do the giving and I sit in HR. So, you know, my primary job is not the veterans piece, but it's part of my job. It's one of our talent strategies, but it also means I get to engage at veterans at work. I get to talk about these things. They recognize like, oh, she's had some weird experiences. Let's hear about those. Mm -hmm. But I also get to be, for better or worse, like a token female veteran because there aren't as many of us. We're the fastest growing group of veterans when you look at categories. So female veterans is the fastest growing group of veterans simply due to the makeup of our military and females becoming more and more um, Mm -hmm. a larger population of our military. And we're seeing that especially with post 9-11. There's more females in the military in the post 9-11 era. And we're now seeing that in veterans as they start to leave the service. Mm -hmm. So that's really interesting. And I also now get to be part of these like really cool conversations around veterans and STEM, which I love, right? Like, what does it mean to be a veteran doing science? And mm-hmm. even more so like a female in STEM. So that's a whole separate issue. And now you like get the intersectionality with veterans and it becomes a really fun topic because you're like, what does it mean to be a female veteran in STEM? <laughs> um, and there's a lot of us, but I'm finding like that's a whole conversation in of itself of these intersections. And these intersections are being talked about not just for females, of course, right? But they're ta- being talked about with race right now. And it's such an overdue conversation that people are finally opening their eyes to having. And we're getting to have those conversations too about how your different identities, whether you want them to or not, shape the experiences you have and how that shapes the perceptions that you have moving forward as well. And how do we increase our pipelines within companies so that we have right representation at the right levels? And and so much of that is getting people in to the pipelines. And so when we work with veterans, that can be a struggle, actually. That transition is hard. When you think about it, most people join the military and they're told what they're going to do. And they're like 18. And then they serve for 20 years and then they get out and it's like, well, what do you want to do? And they're like, well, I don't want to do the thing I was doing for the last 20 years. (laughs) In fact, the majority of veterans say that I don't want to do that thing Mm -hmm. I was already doing. Right. So then they go, but what do I want to do? Like, I don't know. And I mean, who blames them? Like, who would know them, right? Like, you were given a system that operates a certain way. You're told what to do so much of the time. And suddenly, they, like, throw you out on the curb. And they're like, figure out what you want to do. Get a job. Like, good (laughs) luck. Find purpose. Be happy. And then we wonder why people go through such, like, a dramatic period of transition. And, Mm. you know... I think with any transition, we know there's certain psychological phenomena that are frequent, such as depression and things like that. And we always look at how long is it lasting? Okay, is this clinical or is this just normal? Like, we don't even talk about that with the transition process once you get out, because it's like, oh, you're out. You're not one of us anymore. Hmm. And like, that's not right. So I'm getting to like talk about those issues much more openly and freely now. And I'm getting to connect people that are better at talking about it than me. I think that's my favorite thing is connecting other people. Like you two talk because you know it better (laughs) than me. I just know both of you. That's the best. (laughs) Um, But just like getting to see these conversations starting to flourish and take root and become more mature and becoming action, right? As we're seeing with joining forces with Dr. Biden or other things like that is so exciting. And I... You know, for anyone that's still entering the field now, knowing that's in your future also as a trajectory, if you like that type of work, like that could be 
the type of work you do. And it might be in the VA, but it actually also might be in a corporation. Mm -hmm. It exists in a much larger ecosystem than I think sometimes we realize, especially when we're still in school. And you just have to be open to talking to people to understand how that ecosystem operates and just continuing to be curious at every step of the way. One of the things that was bouncing around in in my head listening to that important bit of information was like, oh my gosh, there's so much opportunity for psychologists to research, make an impact. You're kind of sharing these niche fields that you are interested in, which is is really cool and and I think uh, an important thing for you know future psychologists to really dial into and listen to because it highlights like oh my gosh there's so much that you can do in these roles and like you said it could be in the military it could be in the VA it could be in a corporation it could be who knows in a private practice it's just endless. And I feel like that theme keeps coming up with the different guests that we have is I almost get so invigorated because there's all these opportunities and I, and it's like, oh my gosh, I could honestly do anything. And if that's what I'm interested in, in studying and researching and collecting data on and trying to uh, push the needle forward in some way, then I, I can do that. So in the military, out of the military, it's just really refreshing to hear there's so much potential. Right. And there's also the, uh, you know, this part that we haven't really talked much about, uh, given the, the current so- social uh, cultural situation where, you know, we are grasping with the issue of racism, sexism, discrimination at large. I think, you know, we haven't talked about a whole lot about the military culture, and it is a lot to kind of unpack, you know, for an episode like this. But I guess I'll, I'm curious, and I wonder what would you say, Dr. Sabo, that for students who are thinking about career in the military psychology, trying to be a part of the uniform service and hearing your experience and wondering if their identity or gender or, you know, what have you, if this is a, a career that they should pursue. Yeah, that's, that is a lot to unpack. Um, <laughs> I'll say one thing. I've never seen myself as female first. And when we talk about identities and like what comes first and second, And perhaps it was how I was raised, but it never occurred to me that I couldn't do something because I was female, right? That just never occurred to me. And I know that though that is an implicit narrative that a lot of females have experienced. And that's not their fault. It's probably not their parents' fault. It's the world around them. So there's that piece of it. And as you can probably tell, I'm a little feisty and sassy and (laughs) am really focused when I want to get something done. So there's a personality component to it, to how I do that. But equally, I acknowledge my femaleness and when it's present, I recognize it's there. It can be frustrating if you feel like something's not occurring because of your status, whether that be gender, whether that be ethnicity or race, whether that be your sexual preference, whether it be because you're pregnant as a female, right? Like that is horribly frustrating and painful and can lead to that feeling of helplessness. Like what's the point? But I think it can also be empowering to kind of like, to be crap. Like, it's like an F you. Like, come on then. Like, let me prove you wrong. Like, fine. I'm going to do it better every time. And I will tell you when I was at the Pentagon, especially that first year, I had to get a lot of buy-in from people. Like, I was just this like young female officer that showed up with a PhD. And I'm like, I'm here to be smart. I don't know that I am smart, but I'm going to play it. <laughs> um, but... I also knew I was a young female officer 
And I knew that's what people saw first. They saw my rank and they saw my gender. Mm -hmm. I'm a fairly like fit looking person. I'm, I'm not big. And so I also saw that they saw like a slender female that, you know, is young. Right. And so Mm -hmm. there's stereotypes that go with that. And I acknowledge those for myself. And I knew then that I had to get them in my corner because of my confidence first. And I pretty quickly did that, but it took me understanding the tactics that were going to get me there. And I also learned the power of advocates and allies very early on. And I was lucky to have them. So I also, in my own work, am very intentional in being an advocate and ally for other people. So if someone gets dropped off the email chain, I add them back in and I call it out. I say, hey, this person had a really great idea. So I'd like to cue it back to them. Right. So I think anyone who's in those experiences, regardless of your identity, because this can happen for men too, if you're in a female dominated world, like I don't want to deny that Mm -hmm. we can all have these experiences. What's so important though, is that you learn from your own experiences and you maximize the situations you're in to the extent you can, and that you're proud and like gain strength from that experience, even if it doesn't turn out Like, even if you don't get the promotion that someone else gets and that's unfair, I guarantee you though, if you can take that growth mindset, not to overuse that psychological term these days, but if you can take that still as like, I'm developing, growing and stronger for it. So like, screw you. If it doesn't work out, I'll go do it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Good on you. Like, good on Mm -hmm. you. And then go help someone else out with it. Right. Cause we will always be stronger together. And so if you're experiencing it, like build a tribe or find your tribe, because you're also going to find strength in that. You sound very uh, military. <laughs> no, no offense. <laughs> it's funny because those are like the catchphrases in like the yeah. non-military wor- world these days, because I've actually gotten to talk on those topics as well. And also in the military world. Oh, totally. And it's For also um, being in the world of resilience and positive psychology and performance. I've seen the movement of that work from the military, which is really where it started in terms Mm -hmm. of the funding, into the civilian world. I actually talk quite a bit now on resilience and all these things about (laughs) performance in the civilian world. And they like hear. I I think one of the things they like hearing is I can talk about the military because they're like, oh, they're super tough. Wow. Like if they can do it, you know. (laughs) But I talk about it now in the civilian world because it's such like a thing now in that world as well. And it's funny how the terms there, the trajectory of ideas from the military into the civilian world, because the military is so forward thinking in a lot of the research it funds. So a lot of it starts there and then it transfers to civilian world. So it's funny you say that because I I do see that. And I oftentimes I'm like, wait, am I using the right words right now? Like, is this group going to know what I'm even talking about? But it, it turns out things are starting to translate for some of that. Well, Dr. Sabo, briefly, what's next for you? What does the future couple of years look like for you? Oh, I wish I knew. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, As much as I'm intentional in what I do, I'm also very much always aware, like things happen without you expecting them to, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm just, I'm continuing to grow my understanding of this ecosystem of the world of veterans and employment. And how we actually, this is really where I'm starting to lean in, how we apply what we have learned about in veterans employment specifically from the last decade of work on it to our general population post-COVID. 
there has been so much good work in terms of how we improve veterans employment. So much so that the veterans employment rate for many years was well above the national average and now it's below. Now I will note that's not the case for military spouses. Military spouses is five times the national unemployment rate, which is egregious. But thinking about the things that we've learned from military psychology, whether it be resilience and responses to crisis and chronic traumatic stress or employment, getting people back to work when they've been out of work and can't quite find that fit, applying those things now to our non-military populations, the time is ripe. And I think it's such a unique role military psychology can play that it may not even realize it can play quite yet. But the need is going to be there post-COVID. We already know the conversations are happening. And if we can just start translating some of those terms for ourselves, we can get there before the need is actually known by other people and be ready to prevent a lot of implications psychologically in terms of employment and in terms of policy that you know otherwise might go in a different path. And so that's what's next. It's helping to be part of those conversations and to the best of my ability, positioning myself to be able to help other people drive that impact in myself, right? Drive it because the need is there and we know it. And we have a lot of work for military psychology to apply that is so relevant right now to the general population in a way that they perhaps yet still don't know that I think that's where my focus is, is how do we continue to translate these findings to other people that need them? And how do we help military psychologists realize that unique role that they can play? Such cool experiences and such amazing, what sounds to me to be groundbreaking research and work in a very unique setting and and in multiple unique ways. One of the things that I loved about our conversation today is it it sounds like you have a theme of creating positions for yourself. And I think that that's pretty awesome and impressive. (laughs) And, you know, it speaks to actually how lucrative this career can be at times. So extremely valuable conversation. I wish we had more time. In my mind, I'm sort of thinking, it sounds like a potential future guest on the show. I know we talked a lot about your background and your training and past experiences, but this topic... And we haven't touched on your vision and policy and strategies, right? (laughs) (laughs) I know. That's one of the things. Uh, I wish I didn't have a meeting right behind this. Goodness. Um, Yeah. Like this strategy psychology. We got to... So that's a future topic for the show. Keen, we'll have to write that down and have Dr. Sabo back. So we'll have to plan on that. But Dr. Sabo, really appreciate you coming and chatting with us and taking time out of your busy schedule away from your family on a weekend to really contribute to the field in in another unique way to educate students such as ourselves as to what are the possibilities and the opportunities. So I really think that this is very valuable. And I just am very appreciative of you and your work and of your participation and engagement in Division 19, as that's been valuable for me. But anyways, Keen, any last thoughts, any last words before we close out? Yeah, so much to talk about <laughs> and, and not enough time. But uh, tr- truly, Dr. Sabo, it's, uh, it's been such a pleasure to be talking to you and learn from you, your perspective. And thank you so much for being here with us and definitely a future uh, speaker down the road. <laughs> Good deal. <laughs> oh, no. yes. I don't know that anyone wants to hear my voice that much, but thank you for having me. It has been delightful. Oh, yeah. And I always appreciate you guys ask some great questions in terms of getting me to think differently, also in terms of some of my answers. So thank you for that. 
Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's just evidence that, you know, I don't know a lot about this stuff. And our understanding is that other students don't either. So it's been fun. I look forward to future conversations and we'll let you continue on your weekend and have a nice and relaxing time forward. So we wish the best of luck to you. And thank you all for tuning in and listening. We hope this was informational and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Dr. Sabo. Thank you. We thank you for your time for listening to our episode. We hope this has been beneficial and educational, and we would love to hear from you. Any questions, any suggestions, any feedback, you can send that to our email at div19studentrep at gmail.com. And that is div19studentrep, as in R-E-P, at gmail.com. For more information about our guest speakers and ways to reach out to them, please check our podcast description. And we do have other ways to reach out to us via social media. And Ethan has those information. And Ethan? Yeah, so feel free to engage further with us on our social media platforms, Facebook and Twitter. You can search at Division19 Students to find us on both of those platforms. We thank you for your engagement and listening to our podcast. And we look forward to you joining us on our next episode. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye.